0: Genesis chapter 42. We continue to study the life of Joseph. This is an interesting part of the passage here. Uh, actually the first part which we did last time, uh, with uh, Joseph, uh, being the prime minister of Egypt already and in second in command, especially during the seven years of, uh, of great severe famine, uh, under the leadership and direction of the Holy Spirit, he gave to Egypt seven years of great, great plenty from which they now have enough for the people of Egypt during the famine as well as others, while others came. And the others that came, specifically, was the family of Joseph from Canaan, the brothers of Joseph, the very same brothers who had put him in a pit that had wanted to kill him and, and get rid of him because they considered him to be arrogant and, and boastful. But they were also envious of the love that Jacob had for, for Joseph in giving him that great coat of many colors, which was really the coat of royalty, the coat of birthright. And, and they, just, they were just upset because he was the youngest at the time. But now the tables seem to have turned a little bit. And we're going to look at the last part of this chapter now with a focus not so much on Joseph, even though he plays a critical role here. But on the heart of Jacob, the father of these sons, Jacob, the son of Isaac and the son of Abraham, a person who knew God, knew God in a great way, had seen God do great and mighty things for him in the past. And there's an issue that we want to kind of focus our attention upon today, and that is on this little statement that you've probably either heard or said, which is, things aren't always as they seem. Things aren't always as they seem. Now the children of Jacob, the sons of Jacob, are on their way back to Canaan, with a directive by this second in command, who is actually their brother Joseph, but they don't know that. Joseph knows them, but they don't know him right now. And the directive was, you leave one of your brothers here, because he accused them of being spies. He didn't want to reveal yet who he was to them, but he was rough with them. And he says, you guys are spies, but if you, but if you do this... You leave one of your brothers here in prison. You all go and you bring your youngest brother to me. Then you can trade in the land. But if not, of course, the implication is the consequences would be great. Now we know that Joseph isn't going to do anything bad to his brothers. But he's put it upon them to bring all of the brothers together. And especially to bring his youngest brother, Benjamin, who was of the same mother as Joseph. That he might be assured that Benjamin was okay. The last part of this chapter, from verses 29 to 38, is really a retelling of everything. So if you weren't here last week, you get to know everything that happened, pretty much everything. But then we focus on this one thing, this one statement that Jacob makes, which is here in our title, everything is against me. So we begin in verse 29 where it says, Then they went to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who was Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We're honest men, we're not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. And then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. And then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. Now remember last time, one brother actually at, went into his sack to get some food for his, for his uh, 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 camel or donkey, his donkey. And, and anyway, so he pulls out some food, and then he discovers that there's the, the, the money's in his bag. And he gets scared because he says, oh man, we're in trouble now. They're going to think that we stole this money back. But now they get to Canaan, and with the father, they all open their sacks, and they all have money. That Joseph made sure they would get back, which means Joseph gave them for free their feed. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid, again... What are the consequences going to be? They're going to call us not only spies, but that we stole from them. They're going to kill Simeon. And they're going to come after us. Jacob, their father, said to them, Now notice what Jacob says. You have bereaved me. In other words, you've caused me to mourn over all of this. You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Now, to him, that's what he was told. Joseph was dead. Those very same ten brothers told their father that their brother Joseph was killed by a wild beast. There was all this blood on that beautiful robe of royalty. Which, of course, they lied and brought that sorrow upon their father. So he says, Joseph is no more. But then he says, Simeon is no more. The son that's in prison, he's already killing off his next son even though he's still alive. Because that's what discouragement does. It gets you not to be optimistic about things, but pessimistic about things. Uh, The glass is half empty, not half full. You, You understand. Right? He's not alone. A lot of us have done that. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin, and his understanding here is, you want to take Benjamin... And eventually he's going to die too, and I'm going to lose them all. Then he says, all these things are against me. You all see that? All these things are against me. And then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, kill my two sons, if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands. In other words, put Benjamin in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said... Uh, Jacob said to him, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. In other words, I am not sending him because if you go and something happens to him, then I'm dead. And I might as well be dead. So, In the course of our study of the life of Joseph, the son of Jacob, there is this underlying lesson. A lesson that pertains to perspectives when dealing with troubles, when dealing with trials, when dealing with tribulations, when dealing with afflictions and injustices and persecutions and the like. What Joseph, listen, what Joseph has had to endure to get to where he is now in the government of Pharaoh's Egypt can only be explained by the providence and sovereignty of El Shaddai, the Almighty God, the one true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That is the only explanation that we can truly have about how Joseph has gone through all of these bad things all of these terrible things, all of these hateful things, and become what He is now in our account. And the fact of the matter is, since the time that we began to look at the stu- at, at this study of the life of Joseph, what have we known? Very simply, God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph when when his brothers were ready to kill him. God was with Joseph when they threw him into a pit. God was with Joseph when the Ishmaelites came along and, and the brothers sold him to the Ishmaelites. God was with him when the Ishmaelites sold him to Potiphar. God was with him when Potiphar falsely accuses him of... Well, actually, Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of rape. And then Potiphar is forced to have to put this great servant of his into prison... God was with him through those 13 years of bad times, bad issues, bad things, bad circumstances. But look where he is now. And although the last passage of this chapter does not have Joseph as an active character, he is certainly playing a major role in the fear and the distress that weigh heavily on his brother's hearts. But the focus of our study today is on Jacob's discouragement. Jacob's discouragement. Because the key phrase is that last part of verse thirty six? All these things, all these things are against me. All these things are against me. Woe is me, all these things are against me. Without acknowledging this, whether shaking a head or this Have you ever felt that way? Don't tell me. Just think about it. More than likely you have. Have you ever just cried out to God, Why is everything against me? Don't tell me, whether you have or not. Because God knows. We probably have. And was it really the case, though? Was it really the case? Don't tell me. You should know. It wasn't. But let me ask you another question. Was everything against Jacob? Was everything against Jacob? No. I mean, let's let's look at the facts. Things certainly were dark for him. I, I I'll agree with that. It was a pretty dark time for Jacob. He was going through a really rough time. I mean he had murders murders for sons. The son that he really loved so much, Joseph, was now gone and, it, and as far as he was concerned, he was dead. So nothing was going right for him in his life since he found out about that gruesome death of his son Joseph who unbeknownst to him was alive and well in Egypt. But you see, many people seem to have the same attitude as Jacob. Many people even in the church today have the very same attitude as Jacob because when things go wrong or not as they want things to go, they are apt to say the very same thing. Everything is against me. And if these people are indeed believers in Jesus Christ, let me say this. What has happened? Well, they have forgotten about God and they have forgotten about His promises. Could that be any of us today? Don't tell me. They have forgotten about God and about His promises. And they might even blame God. Has that ever happened to you? Listen, don't tell me. But I wonder how many of us have blamed God when things go wrong. They blame God. They they may even get mad and yell at God. And then they begin to yell at other people. And they might even come to the point that if God has done all these things, well, well, I'm just going to leave the church. I'm just going to get out of the church. But that's when we have to come to this thought. But things are not always as they seem. Things are not always as they seem. Listen, Jacob lived. Jacob will go on to live long enough to see that everything was not against him. Jacob is going to live long enough to know that Jacob, uh, that his son Joseph was not really dead, but that he was actually the prime minister of Egypt. Jacob was going to live long enough to know that Simeon was not a prisoner awaiting execution. Or that Simeon was as as good as dead now that he was in a prison in Egypt. He was going to live long enough to know that Simeon was alive. He was going to live long enough to know that the life of Benjamin was not demanded to the point of death. As he had already figured out in his own heart and mind. Jacob was going to have his long lost son restored to him. That's coming up. By the way, I, I think you've probably already read this, right? So you know that he's going to be restored to Jacob. In other words, Joseph is. And then later on, peace and plenty will await Jacob where? In Goshen, in the land of Egypt. Things that seemed against Him were all working out for Him. See, they're working out for Him, not against Him. God had sent Jacob's son Joseph ahead of His family to save all of them during the famine. And and this is where I I oftentimes think, you know, the, the Lord does really have a sense of humor. I mean, because... What did we learn about uh, Joseph's brothers that were so upset because Joseph had shared these two dreams with them? Both dreams having to do with them bowing down to Joseph? They're saying, you're crazy. We're not going to bow down to this dreamer. What did we just read at the beginning of this chapter last week? They all bowed down to Joseph. Isn't that great? God's just got a great sense of humor. They don't know that they have bowed down to Joseph yet, but when they find out hmm. you know when you find out that God has done something for you ahead of time and, but you didn't believe it before you just said, "Ah, oh, that's not God, that can't, can't be God and then finally you realize, wow, God did that we sometimes feel a little foolish, don't we? it happens but it's okay, God loves you don't forget that so I want us to look at Jacob's error, and I say that because Jacob was a believer. He knew God, and there was an error in his perspective. So I want you to look at Jacob's error and his dilemma. But before we look at Jacob's discouragement, let's look at another perspective in relation to struggles in the course of life. And I want you to look at the life of the Apostle Paul for just a moment. So turn to Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1 in the New Testament. And I want you to notice some things that Paul says of himself. Now, as you're turning to Philippians, you need to understand that this is called a prison epistle because Paul wrote this from a prison to the members of the church in Philippi. And so you realize that now he's in chains as he's writing this. So he says, but I want you to know, brethren that the things which happened to me... Now, I underline that phrase because that phrase is very important to our understanding of perspective. The things that happened to me could very much continue on to say the things that happened to me made me realize that everything's against me, right? But that's not really what he says. He says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out to the furtherance of the gospel. In other words, that's a good thing. The bad things that have happened to me have turned out for good And for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard. In other words, everything that's happened to me while I have been in prison has come to the attention of the palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Just a quick definition of this is to say that Paul was saying, I might be in physical chains... But I'm free to give the gospel of Jesus Christ. And really the ones who are, not in, who, who are not free are the ones that are chained to me. The guards that wish they hadn't gotten this duty. Because they couldn't get away from Paul. And how many of them came to know Jesus because they were chained to this apostle. Then he says, most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains. In other words, because we see what Paul has done in the midst of his suffering, he's preaching the gospel. They have become more confident and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. It is an encouragement when we see somebody going through problems and yet standing fast for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he says, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. And there were those who didn't like Paul. And, and and so when they preached, they preached Christ, but it was done with a bad attitude, you know. And we're not going to get into the d- details of that. But he says, some indeed pre- preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add to my chains, uh, but the latter uh, out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Then he says, what then? Only that every way, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, in other words, whether just pretending or, 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 or just acting as if you're doing something, you know, but it's, that's not really your heart. He says, whether in pretense, by the way, pretense comes from the word pretend. So pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. Whether it's done in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And, In this I rejoice, yes, I will rejoice. Christ is preached. Notice his attitude. Notice his perspective. It isn't the very, it isn't the same perspective as Jacob's. So when Paul in verse 12 writes the words, the things which happened to me, he's not writing to complain, but to inform. He was not writing to detail his discouragement, but rather his victory and triumph over adversity. He had plenty that he could have complained about. I mean, in, in other letters, he talks about him being shipwrecked. He talks about him uh, getting lashes and being beaten and, and being stoned. As a matter of fact, in one place, he was stoned to the point where he stopped breathing and, 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 and the Lord brought him back to life. But he never says those things in complaint. You see the perspective. But it's the victory over the trials. The victory over the trials that he emphasizes. And this is what will be a vital part of our theme on this subject. The great contrast to these words are those of Jacob's. Which are, all these things are against me. That's the contrast to what Paul says when he says, the things that happened to me, happened to the furtherance of the gospel. Good things happen. Now, it has been said that old men are more easily discouraged. Now, as I look around here, I don't see any old men. But if there were any old men in here today, we'd have to say that for some of them, the weight of troubles and sorrow... Of a lifetime can break the spirit of a man. I've seen it happen in some people who become very resentful, very bitter about the way they feel that they've been treated. And this is, a, this is where Jacob was. He was getting up in years, he, he had lost one son, another had been held prisoner. I, I don't know that I could ever understand how it may feel for some people who are fathers. And who lose children before they die. I I could not ever understand the pain of that. Or mothers who have children that die before they die. I can't understand. I I don't think I could ever understand. I can't go to a person and say, you know, I understand what you're going through. No, I don't. I don't understand. And none of us should ever say that we do, unless we've gone through it ourselves. But here was Jacob who had lost one son. Another had been held in, in prison. Now his youngest was being demanded. I mean, can you just see his heart dragging so low? I've seen people like that. But blessed is the man or the woman who is not easily discouraged. Blessed is the person who is not easily discouraged because in them you see hope. You see hope. Now, Paul talks about three things in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, the whole chapter is about love, isn't it? But at the end, he says there are three things. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love, but that the center of the three is hope. Hope is... Our hope in Christ defeats discouragement. Our hope in Christ and in His promises defeats discouragement. Have you ever given a young child, a little boy or a little girl, a a, a set of toy binoculars, or maybe you've let them play with an old set of binoculars that you have? The first thing that they usually do is they pick them up and they look through the big lenses. They look through the big lenses and they're looking and they're saying, Oh, oh. Oh, they go around the house, and and they say you know they're looking through the wrong end, aren't they? And they're saying everything's too small, or everything's too far away. And then they're tripping over each other, you know over things because you know uh, because all things look farther away than they usually are. And there are a lot of people who walk through life that very same way. A lot of people and sad to say, even people in the church walk that way. Everything is out of perspective. Everything seems out of reach to them. Sadly, as I said, there are a lot of believers. Some are constantly discouraged. The smallest problems seem like mountains, and they cause faintheartedness and maybe even backsliding. Maybe the preacher, to them, doesn't preach right, so they get angry. The sermon's too long. The sermon's too short. I can tell you right now, this one's just right. But they say that, you know, the sermon's too long, the sermon's too short, the the preacher's too emotional, the preacher's not emotional enough, oh, you know, maybe he's just too dry, oh, you know, his jokes, we don't understand, don't say anything. (laughs) But some folks, some folks are continually finding fault with something, and then they try to get other folks to agree with them. This is part of the problem here, this is part of the error we need to talk about. They spend hours on the phone with this one and that one trying to build their case and get others on their bandwagon with them. And the whole problem is usually that they're looking through the wrong end of the binoculars. They're looking from the wrong perspective because they're discouraged. And since they see things wrong, they want everyone else to see things wrong too. And that leads to bitterness... Resentment, and it leads to tremendous tribulations and temptations. Let me just say outright that discouragement is one of the devil's greatest tools. Discouragement is one of the devil's greatest tools. It's not the tool that God uses. God does not discourage. As a matter of fact, He exhorts, which means He encourages us. The devil likes to discourage us. The enemy of our faith does all that he can to discourage God's people. That they not see things as they are. Making mountains out of molehills. Sweetness in their mouths will taste bitter. Humility turns into haughtiness and arrogance. Charity and love are laid aside just so that they can become more critical of things. But that is not the way we have learned Christ. As a matter of fact, let me tell you what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, because that little phrase comes up here in just a moment. This I say therefore, Paul says, and testifies in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility or the vanity or the uselessness or worthlessness of their mind. Which says that those who are discouraged go right back to the way they were before they were believers. He says you should not any longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened. So he's going deeper into what happens when this happens to people. He says having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. Does God leave us, folks? Do we sometimes walk away from Him? Sometimes we do. It's amazing how just a few of you said that. I'm thank you, thank you, thanking you for your honesty there. But I think we all know those things, right? And He says, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Why does He say what He says in the, verse 17, that we should no longer walk that way and describes the way that we sometimes walk? because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. This is not how you've learned Jesus. Is it? This is not a trick question. Is this the way we've learned Christ? No. No. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off, in other words, that you take off like an old, stinky, smelly, yucky garment, if you uh, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. We need to be renewed. We've been renewed before. N-E-W-E-D. Now we are to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. And that you put on that new man, like a garment, put on a new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. This is different. As we walk in righteousness, as we walk in holiness, as we walk with the presence of God with us, we will not Slide back into that discouragement. After Paul's shipwreck in Acts 27, you would think, after all the things that Paul has gone through, because Acts is, is 28 chapters long, so we're getting toward the end of, of the, the account in Acts that Luke gives us, and in and, and, and 27, Paul has his shipwreck. In, in chapter 28, what do you think he says? Or what do you think is said of Paul in Acts 28? You know what it says very simply? Luke tells us, he says, that Paul thanked God and took courage. Now listen to that. Paul thanked God and took courage. If you want to read that, it's Acts 28, verse 15. Paul thanked God and took courage. He thanked God that he was with him, Through these troubles and trials, and he took courage to face the next step of his ministry. We need to take courage for the next step we take after this message, after we leave here today. But why could Paul take courage? Why could he take courage? And by the way, when you think of courage, what word have we been focusing on today? Discouragement. What is God giving us every day? Encouragement. Why could Paul take courage? Because he knew that his God was able to keep him and guard him and guide him and lead him and protect him and use him and provide for him. That's what Paul did. He took courage because his God was able to keep him. And in effect, His God, which is our God, is able to keep us encouraged. Do you know that your God, our God, is able to keep us this morning, and every morning, and every day, and every evening as well? Our God is able to keep us. So going back to our text, let's remember one thing. If any man had a right to be discouraged, it probably would have been Joseph, right? If anybody could have been discouraged, it was Joseph. I mean, think about it. His brothers threw him into a pit. They sold him. Eventually he was put in prison having been falsely accused of a crime he didn't commit. But he did not give up in despair or discouragement. He never gave up. Joseph was on his way to the throne because he knew God was with him. And I want you to see the contrast in the life of Jacob because Jacob is a man who at this point in time in his life portrays this to us. The one who thinks that things are against him and forgets that God is with him is making a great mistake. The one who thinks that things are against him and forgets that God is with him is making a grave error in his life. And here's the thing. God was with Jacob. God was with Jacob. Did we ever see any place where God left Jacob? Did, did God ever leave Jacob? Come on, answer me. No. I'm not getting mad at you. I just want, you to, know, I just want to know that you're up with me here. Why? I'll I tell you what. Rather than keep asking you, Let's look at what it says in Genesis 28, because you need to remember this. It says, Behold, the Lord stood above the ladder, you know, that, that, that Jacob saw in his dream. Uh, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, your, uh, the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Notice, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Promise was it fulfilled. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. That was yet to happen, but it was coming. Your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How was that going to happen? Through Jesus coming through the line of Judah. Verse 15, behold, I am with you. Whoa. What did he say? What did God say to Jacob? Behold, I am with you and will keep you, guard you, guide you, lead you, protect you, provide for you. I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Was God with Jacob? So why? Is he saying, all things are against me. By the way, do you know that the Lord made the same promise and covenant with us? See, that's a covenant that God made with Jacob. And does God keep his side of the covenant? Come on, I don't hear you. Thank you. It's 12.15 in the afternoon now, folks. We need to be awake here. God keeps covenant, doesn't He? How about Jesus? How about the promise that He gave to us in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18-20? And Jesus came and spoke to them, to the apostles and the disciples, before He ascends into heaven, and He said to them, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, which means look... Look, behold, carefully, look carefully, look, 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 I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you always. Does Jesus keep His word? All right. Be encouraged. Jesus said, I am with you always, so we need to keep in perspective that He is with us and He is working things out on our behalf always. No matter if there are some good things or bad things happening, is God not with us and is he not working things out on our behalf? All right, so, in this perspective, always remember that wherever or whatever comes is for our good and also for the glory of God. Always remember that. Everything that happens is for our good and also for the glory of God. Never forget. You cannot separate that. So I want you to look at Romans 8 and verses 27 and 28. Because Romans 8, 28 has been a a mainstay verse through our study of of the life of Joseph. We'll get to that in a moment, but let's look at verse 27 for a second. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints, according to the will of God, Christ makes intercession for us according to the will of God. Now, Pastor Tom and I were having convers. We always have these conversations about phrases that people use and say, you know, in society today, and and uh, uh, sometimes, you know, you listen to interviews on sports radio or talk radio or politicians will say this when they're being interviewed from time to time. It's just a little phrase. But I think you've all heard it. It is what it is. Right? You've all heard that. It is what it is. I listen to that and I say, what is? It is what it is. It is? What is? I I don't understand that. It is what it is. And then when they add other little phrases like, at the end of the day, it is what it is. What? Well, you know what I've come to realize is that they don't finish what they say. Because Paul, in one of his letters, he actually says, I am what I am. Now, Paul is not Popeye. Because years ago, those of you who remember Popeye, he used to say, "I am what I am," and that's all that I am. And Popeye would say, "Man, you know, it was Popeye, right?" want to so make sure you're awake here, you know, doing my Popeye thing. But Paul actually said it first, not in that way, but I want you to know how he completed what he said. He said, "I am what I am by the grace of God." Oh, it changes everything if we at least finish what we're going to say. It is what it is. It is. Things are what they are by the will of God, by the grace of God, according to His purposes, as we'll see in the next verse. Let's finish what we're saying. Then I'll be happy. It is what it is by the grace of God it is what it is by the will of God because you see God is in control isn't he God is sovereign. God is righteous. God is holy. He's providential. His hand is on everything. And He's working all things for good. As it says in verse 28, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God. Underline that phrase because it doesn't work unless you love God. But to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Things are what they are according to His purpose. Purpose and His plan and His grace and His will. So, in times of extreme difficulty and burdening problems, and, and without raising your hands, how many of you have gone through extreme difficulties in recent days or weeks or months or years? Some of us have, and it's been painful. But in times of of extreme difficulty and burdening problems, I don't want you to utter the words, everything is against me. Because then I'll ask you, really? Is God dead? Has He lost His power? Does He no longer care about you? Has He forsaken you? I want you to think of this picture. On the cross of Jesus Christ, He makes a statement that was, was said to fulfill Scripture. My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? You've heard that. Why did Jesus say that? And I thought about it this week. My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? Jesus said that so that we who now trust and believe in Him will never have to say it. Is God dead? Of course not. Has He lost His power? Of course not. Does He no longer care? Of course not. Has He forsaken you? Of course not. Therefore, take courage. Take courage. Things will work out for good to those who love God. And are the called according to his purpose. I've got to tell you about Jacob. Jacob's last days, and you all know this because you've probably already read it, but Jacob's last days were going to be his best days because he would soon find out for himself that if God be for us, who can be against us? By the way, that's in Romans 8 also. Verse 31. Just so you'll know. If God be for us, who can be against us? Jacob's going to learn that. Therefore, he doesn't ever have to say again, everything is against me. All things are against me. Woe is me. I want to close with the words of a hymn a hymn that is very precious to me in times of struggle and trial and darkness and despair. It's called Does Jesus Care? It was written 113 years ago, 1901. Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song? As the burdens press and the cares distress, and the way grows weary and long? Oh, yes, He cares. I know He cares, His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. Does Jesus care when my way is dark with a nameless dread and fear? As the daylight fades into deep night shades, does He care enough to be near? Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong? When for my deep grief there is no relief, though my tears flow all the night long? And I think this is the most personal for me. Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? And my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks. Is it aught to him, which means is it anything to him? Does he see? And of course we know what the answer is. Oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, And the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. This is a hymn that was based on a verse of Scripture in 1 Peter 5, verse 7, and I'm going to read verses 6 and 7 to close this morning. But Peter says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in in due time, casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you casting all your care upon him for he cares for you don't be discouraged don't grow weary in doing good don't think that things are against you just remember All things work together for good. Does it help to make more sense to you through this struggle of perspective? What perspective have we been looking at in life through the lens of the binoculars turned the wrong way? Or to Turn them the right way and look at all the things that God will magnify on your behalf. God loves you. I love you. Take courage. Be strong in the Lord. Let's pray.